By the end of 1961, Soviet cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin was on top of the world, and had left the world for 108 minutes when he became the first human being to travel into space. In March of 1968, he had been brought back down to Earth in a tragic and suspicious plane crash. The story of how that happened tells us a lot about the strength and fragility of human beings, and how systems, structures, and power can force individuals into making both noble and catastrophic choices. This is all Welcome to another episode of The Uncover-Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Lee Kunle, and with me, as always, is Nathan Radke. You know, the last time we did an episode, and it was actually on this topic, before we started recording, you asked me if it was an uplifting story. Yeah, I did. You lied to me and said it was kind of an uplifting story, which only in the literal sense was it actually uplifting. In that something went up in the air. It was a little bit uplifting because it was still about, you know, exploration and space. And there were some people in that episode who were legitimately just trying to explore space. Yeah, and there were people who behaved well despite all the pressures against them. I remember when Gagarin was put into his space capsule and uh, that guy kind of revealed the secret code that he wasn't supposed to. Yeah, all that stuff. There was some good, decent people. And of course, you can go back and listen to that episode. This is sort of a part two. Well, I was going to say that. Uh, we talked off air whether this is a continuation or a standalone episode, and it's both. So yep. for those listeners who are tuning into this one without having listened to the other one, that is the previous episode that we just published, go and listen to that if you'd like the full effect. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you're driving or just want to hop in and check out what's going on with the end of Yuri Gagarin's life, then you can just start here. Yeah. I think that all of the stuff from that first episode that we did, it's all cranked up. The people behaving well, that gets cranked up. Okay. The horror and the sadness gets cranked up, down, wait. Yeah, it gets cranked. It gets cranked. Yeah. It's all cranked. This is a cranked episode, and it should be, because I've been working on this one for, I think, four years. Yeah, this has been Nathan's secret passion for the last or research project for the last four years and he is now revealing it which is why i feel like you should go back and listen to the first part just just for nathan and the reason why i've been holding back on this one is because i thought oh you know it's going to be very difficult to talk about this story without going into some great detail about cold war airplanes and nobody wants to hear about cold war airplanes well i was gonna say i was gonna say we have done a lot of Cold War airplanes this summer. We have like really leaned into it. We've really done it justice. There are going to be more Cold War airplanes, but I'm going to put my foot down and say that's it for the rest of the year. No more Cold War airplanes. I don't care how relevant it is. We're just going to have to, well, we'll have to work our way around talking about Cold War airplanes. But you get to do it one more time. Um, I'm going to... Do I know you are. Then. I know I'm you going are. I'm going to I'm light again. I'm going to light this up. So a quick recap. All right. Well, we have a Soviet man, Yuri Gagarin, who is living through very tumultuous times in the Soviet Union. He is born in the 30s. He experiences things like the invasion of the Soviet Union by the Nazis. 
He joins the Air Force and is tapped for a secret program to go into space. And he does. Yeah. It is 1961. So he is the first person to go into space. Yeah. And this is, of course, a huge propaganda victory. It's also just cool. I mean, yeah. outside of being a propaganda victory, it's just cool that we've entered a time where human beings can leave the planet and go into space and see the Earth from that kind of vantage point. Yeah, which is an amazing thing. And we see that in the effect that it has on so many people that do that, where they come back and they're all, oh man, yeah, this planet, it's not as like big and tough as I thought it was. It's actually tiny and fragile. Yeah. Then he, he successfully, he doesn't just go into space, he actually also comes back down, which is right. an important piece of a successful space mission. And we sort of left it there. Yeah. Right. And and we left Yuri Gagarin at the time in which he might be considered at least one of the most famous people on Earth. Yeah. I think there's an argument to be made that at that moment, he was maybe the most famous person on Earth. Yeah. He had this meteoric rise in the sky, literally. Yep. And also figuratively. And then hurtled back to Earth, literally. And as we're about to see, figuratively. Okay. So that's what this is about. This is about sort of... Coming end, back to Earth. The end of Yuri Gagarin. Yeah. And you're suggesting that there is, in fact, a conspiracy here. Oh, is there ever? I want to know, did the Soviet government murder Yuri Gagarin? Wow. So that's the, that's the potential claim here, yep. is that the Soviet state may have murdered the first person who went into space, potentially at one point the most famous man on Earth. Okay. Yeah. I'm all ears. All right, so here we go. I will even suffer through airplanes for this. You will rejoice in the airplanes. <laughs> so months after his famous flight, things were actually already sort of going poorly for Gagarin. And here's why. He had taken his training extremely seriously. We talked about how much he wanted to go into space, his love of flying, all of these things. And so he took that training extremely seriously, but... When he had, like, a social occasion, he would, of course, drink a little bit. Okay. But once his job became an unending stream of social occasions, he was drinking all the time. I see. Because now his, his job wasn't to train to go into space. His job was to go around the world as a Soviet ambassador. Right. And if you were an ambassador, that's a lot of parties. It was a lot of drinking. Okay. And there was one specific incident at a spa where... We don't entirely know what happened. What appears to have happened is that he was in a room with another woman who was not his wife. His wife came into the room and caught him and this woman, and Gagarin jumped out of a window. Oh, wow. And was almost killed. That is a way to really demonstrate your guilt in yeah. that kind of situation, I right. feel. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, there's no attempt to say, hey, this isn't what it looks like, right. or I know this looks bad. It's just, you know what? I'm just going to go out the window. Just jump out a window, that which also, also doesn't a, solve anything. It sure doesn't. Like, you're not going to jump out of the window. Even if you land properly, you're not going to, like, dust yourself off and be like, okay, now what, the, what am I doing for the rest of the day? Now just keep running, I guess. Yeah. It's not, it's a short-term plan, and it was a poor plan. He came very close to cracking his skull open. Okay. And he was actually quite badly hurt. And the Soviet government had to come up with a cover story to explain why this Soviet ambassador was now pretty badly injured. Right. So, uh, sorry, can I just ask, 
we think he is drunk in this situation. He was absolutely it drunk. Feels in it. like the kind of thing that seems like a good idea when you're drunk. Yeah, it isn't. Like, I will those... solve this problem by jumping out a window. Yeah, it isn't one of those sober <laughs> thoughts where you think, "Oh, I know, I'll jump out of the window, and then things will be fine after that." So the head of cosmonaut training, uh, Nikolai Kamanin, Kamanin, I struggle with Russian names. Yeah, I don't know where the accent is. Yeah, where where you put the emphasis? Yeah, Nikolai Kamanin, Kamanin. Nikolai Kamanin, the head of cosmonaut training, said of the incident, It could have had a very gloomy outcome. Gagarin was a hair's breadth away from a very nonsensical and silly death. Mm-hmm. Now, Gagarin wasn't the only cosmonaut at this point who had been to space, and he also wasn't the only cosmonaut that was having these difficulties. German Titov... I was going to ask about German Titov. Did Titov, he make it into space? German Titov d- does make it into space. Okay. And when he comes back... He is notorious. He's he's carrying on with with women and drinking and fast cars and all of these very Western things. Yeah. To the point where the Soviet scientists are very concerned about Titov and his behavior. And they're like, why is he doing these things? This is space madness that we it's, talked about last week. Exactly. You go to space, you come back, you're, it somehow changes you. Yeah. And the Soviet scientists actually examined the possibility that Titov's behavior with women drinking in fast cars was the result of long-term effects of some kind of space madness. <laughs> but they could find no evidence for that. You know, this, this isn't great. This isn't a great look. It, it's kind of embarrassing. And after that embarrassment of the window injury and concerns about his drinking, Gagarin gets pulled from the public spotlight, which, I mean, he doesn't actually care that much about. What's much more important to Gagarin is he also gets pulled back from the space program. Okay. And he was promoted, quote unquote, Uh to deputy director of the cosmonaut training program, largely to keep him out of harm's way. He was too valuable a propaganda piece to risk in some kind of accident. Right. Okay. And what year... Is this taking place? This is all happening in the early 60s. Like, it's all happening very quickly. But Gagarin was a bit of a determined sort. He wants to keep a foot into this this space program, so he goes back to school to work on his engineering chops. And in fact, at school, he designs a reusable winged re-entry space vehicle. Oh, wow. So basically a space shuttle. Yeah. Which is impressive in the 60s. Eventually, of course, in the 80s and 90s, that would become one of the main vehicles that was used to put satellites into space. And so this was some reasonably forward-thinking stuff that he's doing here. Like, this isn't some kind of PR exercise. This is him at school doing the work. Right. And the other work that he was doing was sort of sweet. Because he was this famous person, because he was this famous Soviet, he is getting hundreds of thousands of letters. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them are saying things like, hey, you went to space, you're cool, that's great, I want to go to space, that kind of thing. But a lot of them are pleading with him for help, for very earthbound things. Housing, water infrastructure, pension payments, like placement in institutions, wrongful convictions, that kind of thing. Yeah. And it is fascinating to me because, remember, this whole program, I mean, it has a a couple different aspects. One, you can show off your missile chops Mm -hmm. by putting people up into space, but also... Khrushchev, who was the leader of the Soviet Union at the time, he wants to put behind the evil days of Stalin and like the scary Soviet days. Right. And so it, it is fascinating that this this character, this Gagarin, who sort of exemplified that, remember, like, let's go. Right. Let's go into the future. Let's go yeah. into space. This optimism that people are writing to him and saying, you know, the, the water infrastructure in my town is crumbling. You are like, you are the manifestation you are the personification of, of our hope for the new Soviet Union. Could mm-hmm. you do something about this? 
And what's remarkable, I mean, reading these letters gives an incredible snapshot into life in the Soviet Union in the 1960s. That in itself is fascinating from a historical perspective. But from a personal perspective, apparently Gagarin took these letters really, really seriously. Okay. He would look into them personally. He would get involved. He would say, wow. okay, well, you know, the, this person does seem like they were wrongly convicted mm-hmm. and, and tried to intervene on their behalf. Or sometimes somebody would say, hey, we want to put your face on a bottle of vodka. Mm-hmm. And he would get angry and he'd throw it away. And he's like, why are you wasting my time with these letters? Yeah. I don't want these. I want to help people out. Cool. Space madness, perhaps? Yeah. <laughs> but that is a kind of space madness. You go out into space, you look at the Earth, and I could see developing that kind of space madness from that. Well, I mean, I also think it sounds like a kind of effect of fame. Yeah. Because there is something that changes you. And it changed maybe German Titov as well, where you are now... There's a responsibility that comes with this and a lot of privilege and a lot of access to things that other people don't have. And yeah, what is the causal relationship? You were famous because you went into space and then that impacts how you engage in the world. Yeah, yeah, it changes you completely. Now, like things are about to go even worse for Gagarin. He's about to lose one of his biggest supporters. He's about to lose one of his greatest benefactors. Because on October 13th, 1964, Khrushchev, the leader of the Soviet Union, who of course was a big booster of Gagarin, he was like the guy in charge of the Soviet Union when they put Gagarin into space. Mm -hmm. Gagarin and Khrushchev would always be photographed together, they would hang out together, they would have long talks. Yeah. But, as is the way with most Soviet uh, premiers, in 1964 he gets removed from office in a coup, Mm -hmm. backed by hardliners in the KGB. Yep. And the Soviet government. And he gets replaced by Brezhnev. Right. What's, what's your take on Brezhnev? We said with Khrushchev, he, he kind of seemed like a bit of a clown, but he was very wily and kind of sneaky. And also did, if he didn't stop, he, he did kind of reduce some of the horrors that we saw in the Soviet Union under Stalin. Yeah. So what, what do you think of Brezhnev? Oh, wow. I feel like with Brezhnev, you move into a new kind of Soviet Union or in the last episode, we talked about bureaucracies going wrong and things Mm -hmm. like that. This is really the cranking up of that, where you have a real bureaucratic functionary who is also kind of a hardliner. He's a KGB guy. He is, look, he's not Stalin. That's a really... I mean, that's a low bar. It is a really low bar. And let's not not be too romantic about Khrushchev Mm -hmm. either. There were still... While they weren't being used as much, they were still the gulag. They were still oh, yeah. the camps. Still political prisoners. They're still political prisoners. And yet there was, as you keep talking about, at least a public face of let's go and optimism and a kind of hope for the Soviet Union that wasn't going to be this dreary place. And with Brezhnev, I think it's again a kind of a pullback. A redrearying. A little bit. Yeah. And you have then under his time again you have you have the next soviet leader as well directly under him uh he's the head of the kgb andropov Mm -hmm. so you have brezhnev and andropov and these are old dudes they are very old dudes are cranky they are cranky they are gray gray and and the soviet union is what i kind of think of as the soviet union under brezhnev yeah it is gray yep and it, it is, is joyless, bureaucratic and it is bureaucratic and it mm-hmm. crushes the prague spring and it it's yeah. just 
it's what you see also in, uh, sorry if this is too niche of a reference, but it's kind of what you get from the lives of others. You know, this kind of surveillance of yep. your neighbors and... This is sort of the creation of the Soviet Union that we experienced exactly. as kids. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and he's an old guy. And he's an old guy. And if, and if Khrushchev, again, not perfect... But Khrushchev did move a little bit away from Stalin's Soviet Union. And he was flamboyant. Like, he yeah. was a personality in a way that Brezhnev was not. No. And Brezhnev, I feel like we're we're kind of going back the other direction Yeah, exactly. Again. For Gagarin, I mean, Kr- Brezhnev sees Gagarin as Khrushchev's man. Okay. And so Brezhnev is uninterested in Gagarin. Yeah. It's like, no, uh, this guy means nothing to me. And so Gagarin, again, falls politically. And falling politically in the Soviet Union, it's a big deal. Yeah. Now, in 1966, Gagarin loses another one of his protectors and his mentors. You remember that the chief designer for this whole Soviet space program was Korolev, Mm -hmm. Sergei Korolev. Yes. And the other thing I said about Korolev is at a time when the Soviet Union was doing this, and the Americans were doing the space race as a way of showing off their missiles, Korolev, I think, wanted to go to space. Right. And, and briefly, for those who didn't listen to the previous episode, Korolev had been in the camps and, yeah. or in, in the gulag in yeah. the Soviet Union. He had, like, his teeth kicked out or whatever. Yeah. He is rehabilitated, as they say, and then is made head of the space program and seems, as you say, to genu- genuinely wanted to have gone to space. And also seems to genuinely care about his cosmonauts. Yeah. So, yeah, Korolev, he, he takes some actions that put him at risk. And he does so to protect the space program and to protect the individual cosmonauts. Mm. So, you know. Now, in January of 1966, a bunch of cosmonauts and some other personnel were visiting Chief Designer Korolev at his home. And then the party ends, and Korolev asks Gagarin and another cosmonaut named Lyonov, who's going to show up a lot today. He asks Gagarin and Lyonov, you know, stay a little longer. I, I want to tell you, you guys some stuff. They have some more food and some more vodka. And Korolev tells them for the first time about his time in the Gulag. Oh. Uh, According to Lyonov, He told us how he was arrested, taken away, and beaten. When he asked for a glass of water, they smashed him in the face with the water jug. They demanded a list of so-called traitors and saboteurs, and he could only reply that he had no such list. Mm -hmm. Which is, that's your classic Gulag story. Yep. It's nightmarish. Yep. You're being accused of things... Maybe you did them, maybe you didn't do them, maybe they aren't even things that make any sense. It doesn't right. matter. None of this matters. It's just an exercise in power. Mm-hmm. And a few days after that party, Korolev goes into the Kremlin hospital for a routine intestinal operation. During the operation, his heart gave out and he died. Oh. It's not surprising that he had some heart damage from that time spent in the gulag. Mm-hmm. So it, it isn't that much. There's nothing suspicious about the death. Did the Soviet state cause Korolev's death? They didn't. They didn't assassinate him. Right. I mean, the gulag killed him. Right. And Gagarin is devastated by mm-hmm. this. Not just professionally, but because this is a guy he cares about. So at Korolev's funeral, Gagarin pledged that he wouldn't feel right until he had taken some of Korolev's ashes to the moon. Wow. I mean, that's a hell of a thing to say at a funeral. It's like, you know what? This guy wanted to explore space. He's getting to space. His ashes are going to the moon. That's awesome. Which is, yeah, that's amazing. And Gagarin was also just furious about this death. To the point where he he starts to become a little bit paranoid. Or or maybe it isn't even paranoid. Again, it's hard to tell in the Soviet context what's paranoid and what isn't. 
When another cosmonaut and the first woman in space, Valentina Tereshkova, was having a baby, Gagarin pleaded with her. He's like, don't go to the Kremlin hospital. Hmm. This is where all of these old men go. They're just political animals. They, they have nothing to do with, with actual like medicine or health. Go somewhere to a small village where people have babies all the time. Okay. Go to the, go to the fields even, right. but stay out of the Kremlin hospital. Okay. And Gagarin devotes himself to returning to the space program because he's got to get to the moon. He's got to, he's got to bring these ashes there. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, he does this at maybe the worst possible moment. Because with Brezhnev now in charge, the state was thirsty for new glory. Okay. Because the old glory was on Khrushchev and Brezhnev needs his own glory. The American space program was on pause after the Apollo 1 disaster, which killed three astronauts. And so the Soviet space program accelerated. But with chief designer Korolev dead, the new leadership seemed much more interested in results and less interested in maintaining proper safety protocols. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine where this is going to go. The problem was there was an important anniversary approaching the 1967 May Day, 50 years since the 1917 Communist Revolution, and Brezhnev wanted to do something super impressive in public. He wanted to have two Soviet spaceships docked together in orbit. Whoa. It'd be the first time that ever happened. And right. So that'd be pretty amazing. And there was a new Soviet spacecraft that had replaced the old Vostoks that had sent Gagarin and Titov into space. Okay. And so now you had this new capsule called the Soyuz. It was bigger. It was more complicated. Isn't that what they're still called today? Uh, I think so. Yeah, I think that I think that's true. So they have this plan. They're going to send up one guy in a Soyuz craft, and then they're going to send up at the same time three other astronauts in a in another Soyuz craft, and they're going to dock in space, and it'll be this amazing moment and this wow. huge PR bonanza, yeah. basically. The problem is because they were rushing this, the Soyuz program was riddled with issues and problems. Okay. The first guy who was supposed to be in that first Soyuz capsule was a very close friend of Gagarin, Vladimir Komarov. Is, is that the one whose picture I have in front of me? You have a picture of Komarov in front of you. All right. I will, I will describe this picture later, yeah. and it will give all our listeners a deep glimpse into Nathan's soul. <laughs> yes. It's, it's horrifying. Well. Yeah. My, my soul is horrifying. So Komarov's going to be the first guy in the Soyuz. The backup cosmonaut, if something goes wrong uh, before the liftoff, was Gagarin. Okay. But this Soyuz program, clearly there were some serious problems and they were rushing and they were skipping safety. So in March of 1967, Gagarin and several other cosmonauts had written a 10-page letter going over 203 separate faults that would endanger the Soyuz capsule and the cosmonaut inside it. Hmm. Everybody knew what had to be done. The launch had to be delayed. That's 203 critical problems. Right. You can't send someone into space and expect them to deal with 203 problems. Right. But I have a question for you. Yes. Are you going to be the one who tells Brezhnev that? <laughs> Certainly not. No. No, I mean, he wants it for the anniversary. Yeah. I'm going to tell you a bit of a story now, and this story is, is amazing to me. So Gagarin has a friend in the KGB named Rusayev. Okay. And so Gagarin gives Rusayev the letter. He says, I want you to get this higher up. Mm-hmm. So everyone who gets this letter has two options. They can destroy it mm-hmm. or they can pass it higher up. Uh, which would you do? Yeah, I don't know. There, I, I guess in this case, it would depend on my relationship with my higher up. Yeah, that's true. So it's it's hard to say in the abstract. I would not rule out the possibility that I just accidentally dropped the letter somewhere. Yeah. Because I think one of the problems that, I don't know if I want to implicate anybody else, 
but I think I'll still say it as a as a we statement. I think that we sometimes have the tendency to imagine ourselves as more heroic right. than we might be. Now, who knows? There are heroes out there. There are people, heroes of conscience, who are willing to do scary things, consequences be damned, yeah. consequences themselves be damned. But also, the opposite happens a lot, too. And until you're in that situation, it's not clear which way you're going to go despite how you might imagine it. so And heroism I, is tricky, because if you've got a family, maybe the heroic thing is to protect yourself so that you can look after your family. Yeah, because what happens to them, not, not only does the political stain... Linger? ...on you, but yeah. also on your family. Yeah. So you might be preventing your kids from going to school, your wife from having a job, and I'm not sure. So it would depend. Yeah. Maybe there would be, like... Gregarin had a sort of back channel where you can sneak the letter up another stage, but without implicating yourself too obviously. Yeah, and so that's why he starts off with this friend, Rusev, from the KGB. So and does Rusev send it up, or does he lose the letter? Well, before he sends it up, Rusev talks to Komarov, the cosmonaut who's due to fly in this thing. Okay. And Rusev says to Komarov, well, if there's all these problems, why are you going to go on this flight? Mm-hmm. And according to Rusev, Komarov said, If I don't make this flight, they'll send the backup pilot instead. Hmm. Which is Gagarin. That's and they're Gagarin. buddies, right? Yeah, that's what he says. He says, That's Yuri, and he'll die instead of me. We've got to take care of him. And then burst into tears. Wow. Man, that's so grim. That's, that's like so grim. That's like Brezhnev era grim right yeah. there. I know this machine is not going to work. But if I don't do it, my friend's going to die. And so I'm going to sacrifice myself by going on the space flight that has 203 problems. That I know is doomed. And so after hearing that, Rusev's like, I'm going to pass this letter up. Yeah. Like, I'm going to move it up the chain. Sure. So Rusev decides he's going to pass it up. Mm -hmm. So Rusev gives a document to his KGB superior, General Makarov. Now, Makarov, he doesn't want anything to do with it. Yep. But... He does pass it along. Wow. To a department head named Fedjikin, who dodged it like it was poison. Yeah, because it kind of was. It's political poison right there, that letter. But does tell Rusev, okay, give it to this other guy, Tsinev, who is a close personal friend of Brezhnev. Okay. Okay, so now we've got Rusev gets it from Gagarin. Mm -hmm. Rusev, upon talking to Komarov, is like, I got to pass this on, gives it to Makarov. Makarov gets it to Fedjikin, and Fedjikin gets it to Tsinev. And Tsinev is like right nestled up close to Brezhnev. Yeah. So this letter has had its elaborate labyrinthine path through the Soviet bureaucracy and is almost at Brezhnev. And and we have an org chart, an organizational chart of the KGB, and it is Byzantine yeah. and liber... What was your word? Labyrinthine. Labyrinthine. It is very complex. And so this is actually a rather direct route, I would almost yeah, suggest. Yeah, it's not, not bad. <laughs> it's not bad. There's only like six people here. Yeah. So it, it's this relay race. Gagarin to Rusev to yeah, 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 Makarov yeah, yeah. to <laughs> Fadjikin to Tsinev. So very straightforward. <laughs> and then Tsinev destroys it. Oh. So Fedjikin, who passed along, was demoted in central run. Makarov passed along, fired and lost his pension. Yep. Rusev, yeah, so these are the real consequences. These are the of, consequences. Of saying to the leadership, things are not as rosy as you think. Yeah. Now... Oh, we're not even done yet. Oh, Rusev, right. stripped of his responsibilities and demoted to the sticks. 
Tienev, who destroyed the document, promoted. Now, what, what do you know by any chance what the reasons were given for their demotion? They didn't have to supply much in the way of reason. I mean, all you had to do was say this person is politically inappropriate. Yeah. Or this no, person I'm just has curious been. If you actually had like the, the terms that they use, because it will be stuff like, you know, you're unreliable counter, not even a counter revolutionary, but uh, what was the term that was always used? Um, I think that was one of the terms. That was revisionist, used. you right. know, and yep. you don't have enough faith in the system and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And that's so this letter just wreaked havoc. Yeah. And all of these people end up getting sacked or demoted, except for the guy who destroys it, who gets promoted. There you go. And so needless to say, you know what is going to go up right on time? Yeah. Is that, is that is uh, the so- Soyuz? Is the Soyuz. So on April 23rd, 1967, Komarov climbs into that Soyuz capsule to blast off on a mission that he knew he's not coming back from. Mm-hmm. And there has been some discussion about how Gagarin was furious and he like showed up wearing his spacesuit and demanded to go instead. I mean, that story doesn't actually make much sense because they wouldn't have been wearing those spacesuits in that capsule. But there is evidence that, no, Gagarin was furious and did make like a, a, did make a bit of a scene before Komarov got into the capsule. And there is a photograph taken right before he he climbs in and Komarov and Gagarin look devastated. Wow. And so he blasts off. Now, once in orbit, one of the 203 problems was that the solar power vanes, these sort of little solar panels that come out to power up your guidance computer, Mm -hmm. one of the 203 problems is that those wouldn't deploy properly. Mm -hmm. You know what happened? They didn't deploy properly. They didn't deploy properly. I'm actually, frankly, surprised he even made it into space. Yeah. And then one of the other problems was that the guidance computer didn't have enough backup power, so the guidance computer failed. He's up there for 18 orbits. He's up there for 26 hours, all by himself, trying to fix the problems as they pop up. Every time he fixes one, another problem shows up. They're cascading problems, of course, because of this, because it's, a, it's a, an enclosed system. Mm-hmm. And so one problem causes another problem, causes another problem. So now it's at the point where they say, okay, we're going to terminate the mission we're going to try and get you back. Mm-hmm. But without the guidance computer, he's got to sort of do it in his head. He's got to figure out the re-entry angle. He's got to figure out how long of a burst to do on the retro rockets. He's got to figure all this stuff out in his head. And I don't really know much about this, but I know enough that if you come in at the wrong angle, you're either going to burn up or you're not going to slow down enough and you're just going to plummet right down. Yeah, you're either going to skip off the atmosphere and then just go off somewhere, or you're going to be facing the wrong direction. There's no margin of error here, and he's trying to figure it out in his head. Now, they do have these sensors that detect where the stars are. Okay. And that's great, because if you can detect where the stars are relative to the capsule, then you can figure out what angle to come back to Earth at. Okay. That's brilliant. Yeah. One of the 203 problems yeah, was those sensors had been placed too close to the thrusters. Oh, so they like burned up and so don't they, work. So they burned up and didn't work. I mean, look, I, even I know. I'm no rocket yeah. designer. I can tell you don't place them next to the thrusters. Yep, because thrusters thrust. So they burn out the lenses, and now Komarov is looking at the moon, trying to figure out what angle to come back to the Earth at based on where the moon is out of his porthole. Oh, my. Meanwhile, back in the United States, the NSA, of course, is secretly listening to every transmission from the Soviet space program. Mm-hmm. So they detect the communications between Komarov and the Earth. And after realizing there was almost no hope of getting Komarov back, they put his wife on the radio. 
to talk to him, to say goodbye. The NSA does? No, no, no. Oh. The, the NSA hears the Soviet stories. Right, okay, okay. And so the NSA is listening, and Komarov's telling her, okay, here's what you should do with her finances, here's what you should do with the kids, tell them this, do that. And then Gagarin takes over on the radio, and Gagarin and Komarov are, are trying to work together to figure out, okay, how do we stabilize the capsule, how do we fix this problem, how do we fix that problem? And amazingly, he gets the re-entry angle more or less correct. Whoa. Unbelievable. 203 yeah. problems, and they've solved like 202 of them, basically. Wow. Fantastic. Of course, if you do your math... Yeah, you still got one problem left. Yeah, that last problem was that the parachute would almost oh, certainly no, fail in re-entry. That. You definitely need it, because there's no angle you can re-enter from space... Yeah. And, and and somehow have a graceful landing. Yeah. The parachute didn't work. Thank goodness we got the angle right. Yeah. So uh, the parachute fails. And instead of parachuting down to Earth, the Soyuz capsule just comes crashing down to the ground at free fall speed. Mm-hmm. The NSA officer who was listening into the Russian communication said afterwards, The strange thing is, we were all pretty bummed out by the whole thing. In a lot of ways, having the sort of job we did humanizes the Russians. You study them so much and listen to them for so many hours that pretty soon you come to know them better than your own people. Mm-hmm. Again, this thing that keeps happening in the Cold War stories, we have these epic battles between ideologies, and then we got humans. Yeah. And the humans feel sympathy and empathy for each other. Yeah. And they do kind things for each other. It's, it's wild. Komarov did not survive. No. And that brings us to the photograph that I have on my refrigerator, which yep. is now in front of you, which is Komarov's funeral. What are they burying? It is, I mean, there's no resemblance to a human being. Mm-hmm. None. I didn't know what, what I was looking at. So you have in the photograph depicted are about five officers, clearly of high rank. None of them are, and they're not people I would know. And they are in front of an open, and it's amazing that it's an open casket. Yeah, they did an open casket for this funeral. And it is just a charred wreck. Like, it looks like metal, sort of molten metal that's all black. Mm -hmm. And has just, there's just no discernible human shape here. Yeah. It's, it's, um, It's horrific to think that that's a human being. Yeah. Or was a human being. And worse yet, when you hear the whole story of how it became that charred lump about 12 inches by 31 inches. Yeah. I, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's really, it's, it's, and, and this is what, this is a picture that I have seen for years on Nathan's fridge. Yeah. Just there it is. Yeah. I keep it on the fridge as a reminder, as a reminder to stay human. Uh, and also as a reminder that when we do these stories, there are people involved. There's right? people. Yeah. There's people and there's consequences and, and all that stuff. So yeah, that's why it's up on the fridge, along with a bunch of more happy things. No, I guess not. So now Gagarin has lost Khrushchev and he's lost Korolev and now he's lost Komarov in like the most horrifying way possible. Yeah. yeah. And predictable. And, I mean, yeah, so that's what annoying makes it so terrible. That, that you knew this was coming. Yeah. And also that you got so close. I mean, in a way, if he had just kind of exploded on launch, it would somehow be less horrifying than getting into space, solving 200 of the 203 problems, even managing the re-entry, and then the stupid parachute doesn't deploy. And then the parachute doesn't deploy. I know it's tragic. 
Gagarin becomes increasingly convinced that there were KGB bugs in every wall, mm-hmm. that there were informers in every crowded room. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, maybe there were. Yeah. I mean, can you be paranoid in that situation? Is paranoia even possible in that kind of situation? Mm-hmm. Despite all of this, according to, again, Rusev, the KGB friend, Gagarin becomes determined he's going to confront Brezhnev. Okay. He is going to confront Brezhnev for Komarov's death. Mm-hmm. He's like, nope, this will not stand. I'm going to use what's left of my capital as like the first guy in space. I am going to talk to Brezhnev about mm-hmm. this. We don't know if he ever did. There are rumors that spread that Gagarin threw a drink in Brezhnev's face the next time the two men were in the same room. Okay. So those rumors, they're out there. Is that something that we know for sure? We'll never know for sure. So then after the death of Komarov, which was a real black eye for the Brezhnev regime, Gagarin was forbidden from traveling into space. It's like, nope, you can't go into space. We can't lose you like that. Mm-hmm. Gagarin did an interview with Pravda, which of course is... The major newspaper. Yeah, controlled completely by the state. Yeah. And in that interview with Pravda, Gagarin places the blame for Komarov's death at the feet of the administration. Okay. So he is taking some swings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I don't know if he threw the drink in real life, but he threw a drink right here in this, yeah, yeah, in this yeah. interview. Now, was that published as is? Yeah. Wow. Uh, he said that the administration refused to heed the warnings, that the program needed to be delayed while the problems were worked out, and particularly the man who had replaced Korolev, a guy called Machine, who was far less concerned about the safety of his cosmonauts than Korolev had been, and was far more obedient to the will of the Kremlin. And Komarov wouldn't be the only cosmonaut to die under the leadership of machine uh, Soyuz 11 three cosmonauts are killed in space okay so by February of 1968 Gagarin had gotten his diploma in aerospace engineering he had earned it he had done the work and he had been made the deputy chief of training at Star City the the big space base mm-hmm. near Moscow but Gagarin was determined not to be grounded and so what was left of his political cap capital he uses to demand to be trained in the new MiG fighters okay so that he could work his way back to the cosmonaut program. And according to his friend and fellow cosmonaut Alexei Leonov, because Gagarin thought he had a moral obligation, if he was going to be training cosmonauts, that Gagarin had to be in the best possible flying condition. Otherwise, what right would he have to train anybody else? Mm. So March 27th, 1968, it's a gloomy, overcast day. In the business, we call that foreshadowing. Right. <laughs> Gagarin takes off from an airbase beside Star City, and a MiG-15 UTI. Okay. And if you think you have a MiG-15 UTI, you should drink more cranberry juice. <laughs> that is a terrible joke, which I'm saying because this part is set. So the MiG-15 UTI, it's a two-seat trainer version of the MiG-15. The MiG-15, I don't have to tell you no, about the I MiG-15. No, all of this now. All about the MiG-15. So he takes off on a training mission so that Gagarin could qualify to fly the newer MiG models. In the back seat, in the instructor seat, was the instructor Vladimir Sarugin, a fighter ace from World War II in his late 40s who had a reputation as being cautious and careful. Okay. Sarugin was also a close friend of Gagarin. So Gagarin goes off to fly around to get a little bit of time in the, in the jet fighter to reacquaint himself with, you know, doing some maneuvers and things like that. Meanwhile, on that gloomy overcast day, Gagarin's friend and fellow cosmonaut Alexei Leonov was flying a helicopter and running a training session with some parachutists. The weather was bad enough that they were forced to abandon the training session, and so Leonov brings the helicopter back down to Earth, and after he lands, he hears two loud noises. 
One was an explosion, and the other was a sonic boom. Wow. A sonic boom is the noise that is made caused by the shockwave that occurs when something goes faster than the speed of sound. Mm -hmm. And the two noises occurred about one second apart. Now, Leonov knew that Gagarin was scheduled for a training flight that day, so he was immediately concerned. He thought, wait, I know that Yuri is off flying somewhere, Uh and I've just heard these explosions. And so he gets back in the helicopter, despite the fact that it wasn't great helicopter flying weather, and flies to the airbase that Gagarin was using. And when he landed, he was greeted by the base commander who told Leonov, no, Gagarin hasn't landed yet. And they had lost contact with his plane. Uh-oh. So a search helicopter is sent out to the area of last radar contact, and they find a crash site littered with the wreckage of Gagarin's MiG-15. Okay. A search party was sent out, and human remains were found that were identified as Gagarin by Leonov. Apparently, I mean, there wasn't much left of anybody, but there was a little bit of flesh that had a birthmark on it. And Leonov said, I know that birthmark. That is Gagarin's birthmark. Wow. But enough remains were found from Gagarin and Surugin, the instructor, that officials were able to run medical tests to try to figure out what might have happened. So there was no significant amount of alcohol in their blood. Okay. And this was actually a story that started to spread that Gagarin was drunk when he died. Okay. That he was drunk in his plane. Yeah. And that, I mean, because he had been having troubles with alcohol, that's not an unsurprising story. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't comport with what we actually see in the evidence. There were high levels of lactic acid in the muscle tissue of both bodies. Okay. Now, what that means is that both pilots were awake and conscious and alert at the time of the crash. I see. If they had been passed out, they wouldn't have those high levels of lactic acid because you'd just be passed out. So they were awake. They were alert. Uh, The controls in the cockpit were set in a position that indicated that the pilots were trying to recover from a spin. And they were also set in a way that suggested the pilots were following the correct spin recovery procedure. Okay. Because you're in a spin, especially in something like the MiG-15, which spun out a lot, there were very specific protocols. If you start to go into a spin, you move the control stick like this, you put the rudder in this position, and that's exactly what was happening in this cockpit when it crashed. The MiG had crashed on its belly, not nose first. It hadn't just like stoved into the ground. So it looks like, kind of like with Komarov and his Soyuz, they had almost gotten control back oh, when it hit the ground. Okay. Neither pilot had tried to eject. All right. Which makes sense if you are winning the battle with the spin and it looks like you're going to get control. Yeah. There's an even sadder reason why neither pilot might have ejected. Oh, no. The way the MiG-15 was designed, the rear pilot, the instructor, has to eject before the front pilot. Okay. So if you're Sarugan, are you going to bail out and leave Gagarin, even for a second, in that stricken airplane? Or are you going to try everything you can to try to get under control? Yeah, I guess. That's a weird system. Well, I mean, it it kind of makes sense in in kind of a tragic way, because the ejection system involves like a little rocket under your seat that shoots you up into the air. Well, it's sort of... you. You are committing both of you to ejecting. If one of you ejects... If one of you goes, the other one's not going to be like, I'm going to stay. If the guy in front ejects first then his rocket is going to sort of like pass over the guy behind oh, and it's yeah. going to fry him to a crisp. Right, okay. So, so it does make sense from an engineering okay. perspective, but it and, doesn't make as much sense from a human perspective. And also, I guess, from a training perspective, because you don't want the students being like making the decision about whether they yeah. should leave the... I'm out of here. I'm out of here. I, yeah. I'm, I'm scared. <laughs> but despite all that, it also just seems extremely unlikely that the instructor Sarugan, a friend of Gagarin and also 
would have felt like a, a tremendous sense of responsibility as yeah. the instructor. Yeah. Like, I just can't imagine him leaving. Okay. He's going to try and, and save this plane and save them both. Did not happen. The front of the canopy was smashed, understandably, because it crashed into the ground, but almost no plexiglass was found on the crash site. Okay. Which means that the canopy glass was smashed before the plane hit the ground. Huh. So, so, uh, so this is where you're leading to the potential of sabotage with yeah, the plane. What happened there? So you're so so maybe the canopy was somehow manipulated before they took off. Well, here's the thing. I mean, it's not going to be the his buddy, the flight instructor. No, and there was an official KGB explanation for all of this. Of course, there was. And I'm going to tell you right now, you are going to be livid. Okay about this explanation. What is it? You're going to be shocked and livid. Okay. What is your least favorite explanation that we've ever come across, especially when we're doing UFOs? Weather balloon or Venus. Well, it couldn't have been Venus that hit them. <laughs> so what did the KGB blame? Weather balloon. A weather balloon. That's unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, they're even doing the same excuses when it comes to this. Yeah. They said, oh, he must have hit a weather balloon. Case closed. Case closed. Not like you wouldn't see that coming from a mile away. Well, and the other thing is that, you know who this case wasn't closed for? Was his friend and fellow cosmonaut, Leonov. Okay. Who, remember, had, had, had heard those two explosions. He's right. like, um, hey, you know what doesn't explode? Weather balloons. Right. You know what doesn't cause sonic booms? Yeah. Weather balloons. Yeah. So what, where did that sonic boom come from? Well, that's what Leonov is curious about. Because... You know what else couldn't make that sonic boom is the MiG-15. Oh, really? I assumed it could. The MiG-15, not a supersonic plane. Okay. And so he, he's like, no, I heard... He, he's a pilot. He knows what a sonic boom sounds like. It can't even make it when it's crashing. I mean, because it was pulling up uh, as right. it was diving, it couldn't have been crashing at a speed fast enough because you can't... You wouldn't have been able to pull up in a supersonic dive in a MiG-15. Okay. So because it lands on its belly... For it. I told you there was going to be some airplane stuff here. <laughs> So Leonov is convinced that there was something else going on. He interviews eyewitnesses, and he learns that there had been another plane in the sky oh. with the MiG-15. And when they were provided with like some silhouette identification cards, the witnesses who saw it said that it was either a Sukhoi Su-11 or an Su-15 supersonic fighter interceptor. Huh. Now that thing could make a sonic boom. Okay. And it looks radically different from a MiG-15. Okay. It's got triangle wings instead of straight swept back wings. It's a completely different looking plane. One of the air traffic controllers told the commission that he had seen two other blips on his screen other than Gagarin's MiG. Hmm. If a Sukhoi Su-15 had passed close by Gagarin's MiG, going faster than the speed of sound, it would explain the sonic boom. Okay. It would also explain the smashed canopy. Okay. And it would also well, explain the crash itself. how would it explain the smash canopy? Like The shockwave from the sonic boom passing close by, because according to the air traffic controllers, these two planes came so close to each other that it almost looked like they were one plane at one point. And the question is, was this deliberate? That's the question. So Brezhnev is like, this guy's a pain. He's insubordinate. Mm -hmm. He is a liability because he's really famous. And he's not towing the party line. And he's, he's a bother. Yeah. And so let's get rid of him, yeah. potentially. And how in, do we... in a way that looks like a convenient accident. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then the KGB comes out and says it was a weather balloon. It was a weather balloon, which is super suspicious. Yeah. I mean, at that point, why not say there was a screw-up in the sense where 
we had two planes in the sky that shouldn't have been in the same airspace. And that, that was a mistake. And then you demote the air traffic controller who allowed it to happen, quote unquote, and maybe even the other pilot and boom. Yeah. I mean, sorry, not boom. Well, but yeah. also boom. Yeah, but boom. Now, can I just ask a counter question? Because sure. this story follows from just Soviet tech not being super great. Yes. So is there a possibility that this was just crappy equipment? Well, I mean, I spent a lot of time on this, as you as you know, years. Four years, I spent Four on years this later, I asking this very question. Answer. Yeah. Well, let, let's start by asking a few questions. We'll give the listeners kind of a view into the way we investigate some okay. of these things. All right. First of all, is it conceivable that the Soviet that the Soviet state would have conspired to murder one of their own people? Yes. Yeah, that's an easy one. Yeah. Of, of course they would have. I mean, you don't need to be the Soviet state. This is a game. It often sounds like on our podcast that we are really picking on either Russia or the Soviet Union. And they do provide some marvelous examples of political shenanigans and misdeeds. But you can even go to democracies that have done these kinds of things. And oh, yeah. it's not it's not savory, but it does happen. I mean, we had an episode on Fred Hampton. Yeah, Fred Hampton was murdered by the American state. And yeah. at some point, we're going to do an episode on Martin Luther King. Yeah, that we There's should. There's so many. Sketchiness there. So many major conspiracies death. we still haven't looked at. Okay. Yeah. So, so would uh, they have? Yes. Yes, sure. They Did they have reason to? Maybe. Yeah. I mean, they had reason in the way the Soviet state worked, which is caring about things like embarrassments and mm -hmm. towing the party line or whatever. Yeah. But the other question is, if you're going to kill him, is this the way you do it? Now, we've seen some pretty elaborate assassination techniques. I mean, think about Castro. Yeah. Think about the hilariously ridiculous elaborate ways that the CIA tried to kill Castro. Yeah. So, a poisoned scuba suit. Yep. Exploding seashells. Yeah. Beard defoliant. Yeah. It was... Uh, sex spies. A, a, a machine gun inside a television camera. Yeah. That was recording one of his speeches. Poisoned ice cream. Right. Yeah. So elaborate. Yeah. There have been some like ridiculously elaborate ways to kill people. But is this is is sort of setting off a sonic boom near this plane, a kind of surefire method to assassinate somebody? I, I don't think so. I think this is a very low percentage chance of success. So if, if this was your plan, I don't think it's a good plan. No. Okay. The pilot of the interceptor of the supersonic Su-15 or 11... They would have to get close enough for the shockwave to damage the MiG. And with with Surugan in the back seat, I mean, he's an excellent pilot. There's a good chance, and he almost did recover from it. Well, and you also have Gregarin, who is no slouch. I yeah, mean, he's not terrible. He might he's not, not bad. be an expert in this plane, but he's been around the block a couple of times. He knows how to how to fly, and he knows how to deal with stressful situations. Yeah, exactly. And at that at those speeds, at supersonic speeds. That would be a hell of a piece of flying to do on purpose. Mm. The Su-15 or the 11 were not very maneuverable planes at supersonic speeds. It takes you forever to change direction. It might have cost them a very expensive new fighter plane, because if that Su-15 had crashed into the MiG-15, then like this is a disaster. And also, as you recall, the Soviet leadership didn't want Gagarin flying, because they were worried about the bad PR if he was killed in a crash. Mm -hmm. They didn't want this to happen. Mm -hmm. And Gagarin was the one who was pushing to fly. Mm -hmm. So I think ultimately, 
it's more likely that Garen's death was an accident caused by poor traffic control and poor equipment. Okay. Now, a couple ends to this sad story. One, Leonov was convinced that the the official story about the, you know, that the that they crashed into a weather balloon, he was like, that's that's nonsense. That's ridiculous. And so eventually, after the fall of the Soviet Union, Leonov, who was still alive, he demanded to see the official report that did that. And okay. he's reading this report, and he's like, this is trash, this is garbage. Who signed off on this ridiculous report? That obviously isn't true. And he was very surprised to see apparently the person who had signed off on it was Leonov. Ha! Huh. <laughs> he's like, I did not sign off on this report at all. And yet he's looking at his, at his own name. Okay. He's like, oh boy, what a country. Right. Before his death, Leonov was asked by two authors, Jamie Doran and Piers Bizzoni, who have done some excellent work on this, okay. on this whole story. And they were asked, okay, so what about his death? What do you think? And Leonov said, The whole system allowed for Gagarin's death. The entire system. You can't take the entire system to court. You can judge it morally, but you can't punish it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And ultimately, I think, is this part of the reason why we sometimes prefer conspiracy theories? Yeah, I see what you're saying. Because it, it provides a narrative in which you have a villain who is identifiable, and then you also have somebody to take it out on. Yeah, even somebody if you to throw a drink in yeah, the face of. Even if you can't take them to court, or even if you never do, you still have an enemy that you can hate. Yeah. And it's a lot harder to hate systems in which there are people who are also trying to do good, right? Like we've we've encountered them in this story where people were working against the system as much as they could, but also everybody's a self-interested actor at some level. Yeah. 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 And so I think ultimately, did the Soviet state kill Gagarin? Yeah. Yes. Right. I see what you're saying. Yes. Right. Yeah. But not in the kind of, let's get rid of this guy through an assassination because he's politically problematic. Yeah. In the same way that the Soviet state killed Komarov. Right. And in a way, the same way that the Soviet state killed Korolev. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, I don't know if this is a good idea. I was wondering if we put the uh, my Gregarin joke as an Easter egg after the uh, oh, outro, yeah, outro music. That's a good idea. Let's do it. All right. So it was a very depressing episode, as is usual for the Uncover Up. And if you've stayed long enough, uh, here's a little joke to maybe help swallow the bitter pill of this narrative that Nathan has given us. Now, look, it's a joke. So I'm just telling all the audience, just don't get offended. I don't care. It's a joke. Huh. Lee comes in hot. So here we go. So, and it's apparently from the Soviet Union, this joke. Okay. So when Gregorin first goes up into space, of course, the Soviet Union is officially an atheist state. So he goes up into space. He comes back down. He is, as we said, applauded and feted and everybody loves him and wants to shake his hand. But uh, Khrushchev pulls him aside and asks him kind of secretly and conspiratorially, hey, Gagarin, when you were up in space, did you see God? And Gagarin says, why, yes, I did. I did see God. Khrushchev says, God damn it, I knew it. 
but I tell you, you can't tell anybody. And of course, Gagarin, being a loyal subject of the Soviet Union, gives his word to Khrushchev that he will never tell anybody that he saw God when he went into space. Okay. So he, as, as we said, he travels around the world and he meets all these different people, famous people. He has parties and uh, he makes it to the Vatican. And uh, he's there and he's, you know, giving talks and, and people want to shake his hand. But, but in the midst of all of this, that the Pope pulls him aside and says, hey, Gregorian, when, when you were in space, did you see God? And Gregorian says, uh, why, no, I didn't. And the Pope says, God damn it, I knew it. <laughs> that joke is sort of based on truth. Kind of. Uh, in that German Titov was asked, did you see God? Oh, really? And he's like, nah. <laughs> nope. No God up there. 